Many of you know that I grew up on a farm in Ohio. I frequently talk about that. And when I was younger, I, I always dreamed that one day I would be a farmer myself. I, I never imagined that I would do anything else. I definitely never imagined that one day I'd be a pastor. Now, if you talk to my mom, you would probably have a little bit of a different uh, take on things. You'd probably hear a, a different perspective because uh, some of the things that she had prayed over the years, uh, some of the things that she prayed very specifically for me even before I was born. But when I think about the fact that I've been a pastor for over 18 years now, uh, it's really quite humbling. It's really quite mind-boggling that I'm in this position. You know, over the last number of years, one of the things that I have found kind of interesting when I meet people for the first time is that one of the first questions that gets asked is, uh, what is it that you do for a living? And what I've found is that people have all sorts of different thoughts about the church and by association pastors. I mean, just think about our culture today once. One of the big issues today, it just has to do with politics and there is this huge divide. And some have viewed a large portion of the church as just an arm and extension of the Republican Party. While there are others uh, who are a part of the church who are fully immersed in the Democratic Party. Uh, Some say that the church speaks too much about politics. Others say that the church speaks too little about politics. So there are these political divides that have impacted people's view of the church. Others think uh, of more personal issues when they think of the church. Maybe they've experienced hurt in the church in the past. Um, Maybe they've experienced hypocrisy. Maybe they've experienced firsthand some of the people, some of the leaders in the church pursuing after money and wealth and power and fame instead of after the Lord. Maybe they have felt condemnation from the church. And so whenever I meet someone for the first time and they find out that I'm a pastor, I, I always find that the next question is, Oh, well, what kind of a church are you from? And in a lot of ways, that's a very loaded question that's coming. Uh, Like, are you a part of a democratic church or a republican church? Are you part of an intellectual church or a charismatic church? Are, Are you a liberal or a conservative church? Are you welcoming, authentic, missional? Are you a community church, a Bible church, a family church, a mega church? What kind of a church are you from? What kind of a church are you associated with? But the deeper question behind all of these questions, the thing that kind of stands out from all of this is, well, what is the church supposed to be? What should the church look like? What standards should the church have? How are we to think about the church? Over the last few weeks, we've been looking together at what the Bible has to say about the church and what we see is that more than any of the superficial labels that can be given, God has given us these pictures in the scriptures of what the church is to look like. Now, over the last few weeks, uh, what what we have looked at, um, we haven't looked at all of these images in the Bible. The Bible does describe the church as the body of Christ and as the bride of Christ. We've talked about how there is this picture of the church as the household of God, that we are family. A couple of weeks ago on Rally Day, we talked about how as the people of God, we are the light of the world. And that changes and affects how it is that we look at ourselves and how it is that we look at the world around us. These are the kinds of ways that God talks about his people, the church. And 
when we can actually wrap our hearts and our minds around these pictures, around these illustrations, it has the power to transform the way that we see the church and the way that we live as the church. If you are in Christ, these images have the power to transform the way that you see yourself, the way that you see other people, the way that you interact with other people. More than an any ideology, more than any affiliation, these pictures that we see in the scriptures get to the root, get to the heart of who the church is and should be. And so last week we started to look at this picture of the church as the temple of God, and we're going to look at that again here this morning. And so if you have a Bible with you or you can open that Bible app, but I want to invite you to join me in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. Now, before I read our passage for today, I want to just kind of remind you a little bit about what we talked about last week. When we think about these different pictures of the church, I think that this idea that we are the temple of God may be one of the most challenging illustrations to kind of wrap our minds around. Because none of us actually has been in the Old Testament temple. Uh, Our culture today is quite different from the ancient Jewish culture. And so last week, uh, what we saw is that there is this emphasis in Scripture of God wanting to dwell with His people. It started all the way back in the Garden of Eden, which was a place that was kind of like a sanctuary for God's very presence. In essence, this garden was like the very first temple. It was the place where heaven and earth were united as one, where God was present and he transformed everything about that place. God created man and he created woman. He gave them a mission to spread the beauty and the blessing of this garden throughout all of creation. But, but the point was not just that there would be this beautiful scenery. The point was to spread the presence and the rule of God everywhere throughout all of creation. But this garden paradise got corrupted. It was defiled by the very people who were supposed to take care of it. You might think of it a little bit like this. It's kind of like a gardener who goes out and just gets a bunch of weeds, something like what is in this bag right here, and, and just takes these weeds and plants them everywhere, all over the, the, uh, the, this garden. It takes rodents and, and pests and puts them in his own garden. I mean, can you imagine that? And yet here is Adam and Eve, and they defile this sacred temple of God. They, 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 they sin and there is this curse that is brought down on all of creation. But from the very beginning, God had a plan. He had a plan to bring heaven to earth once again, to rescue and restore this broken world. And his plan was the temple. We have a picture that we're going to put up on the screen of what the temple looked like. But in essence, the temple in Jerusalem became uh, like this little slice of the Garden of Eden here on earth. It was this place where heaven and earth met, where God's very presence dwelt. It was this sacred space that reached back into time, and on the other hand, it reached forward in time. It's a place that looked back on the Garden of Eden and what was lost to humanity, and it was a place of hope that looked forward to the day where God's presence and His beauty, His hope, would spread out over the whole earth. And this hope was not just something for Israel, but it would impact the whole world. 
What I find fascinating is that some of the prophets in the Old Testament had these visions where they saw kings and even whole nations who would come and and, uh, come to the temple there in Jerusalem in order to worship the one true God. In fact, the, the prophet Ezekiel has this vision and he sees this temple. You can read about it in Ezekiel chapter 47. But he sees this water and it's flowing out of the temple and it's bringing healing to the nations. And so just like the Garden of Eden, the temple was to be this place where God's presence flowed out of it and covered the whole world. The temple was God's plan to bring about the restoration of creation. But because of the sinful heart of man, that plan was never fully fulfilled. God wasn't finished yet, though. He wasn't giving up, and he breaks into this world in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus comes on the scene, and he becomes the temple of God living among us, that he is the true temple. He is the place where God's presence dwells, and the one who brings restoration to the whole world. That temple from the Old Testament was intended to point to Jesus. It is a picture, a shadow that is supposed to draw our eyes to him. That Jesus is the better temple. Jesus is what God is using to move through this world and to bring restoration and the presence of God on earth. And so Jesus completely changes the way that we see, what way we see things in the temple. And then the Bible tells us that through Jesus' disciples, this extends even further. For those who have trusted in Him, we are united to Him, we are connected to Him, we are one with Him. And because of that, the church itself becomes this temple of God, and it builds on the foundation of Jesus Christ and brings us to our text here this morning, 1 Peter chapter 2. You've got your Bible open in front of you. I want to go ahead and read these verses for us. We're going to read verses 4 through 6. And here's what it says. As you come to him, as you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, as a temple, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him shall not be put to shame. New Testament writers, especially Peter in particular right here, is saying this. He's saying, Jesus is the temple. He is the place where God dwells. He is the place where we come to worship And we, as his people, are connected to him, which means that we become these living stones that are built in in, in building this spiritual house and built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. So, since this is true, it causes us to ask the question, well, what does it mean that the church is the temple of God? A couple of things that I want to point out here from this text. Number one... The temple of God, the church, is a people of presence. The church is a people of presence. The the temple in Jerusalem was supposed to be a sacred place. It, It was a sacred place, first and foremost, because God dwelt there, because God chose to put his presence on display there in a very unique way. 
to make his glory known. Without the presence of God, the temple was just a really big, beautiful building, which might seem nice, but it really doesn't have much lasting, meaningful significance. But because God dwelt in this place, this place became a place where heaven, where you could find heaven here on this earth. In the same way, the church is called the temple of God. This means that the church is the place where God's presence dwells here on this earth. It's the place where you find His Spirit. In one way, you could say that the church is the address of the living God here on this earth. Do you want to find God? Do you want to find the presence of God? Well, it's in the church. What makes the church the church is not that, that we're a bunch of good people. It's not that we're, uh, what we're doing here um, is we just don't have anything better to do on a Sunday morning. What makes the church the church is that God himself dwells in us. God himself dwells among us. And that's what makes the church the church. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, the Apostle Paul would put it really clearly When he said this, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Or or again, just a few chapters later in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says this, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. From the very beginning, God was wanting to immerse his creation with his presence and his blessing. In the Old Testament, the temple was supposed to be that place. But now in Jesus, the church becomes a little taste of the Garden of Eden. The church becomes this community that unites heaven and earth together. As the church, just like Adam and Eve in the very beginning... We are called to cultivate this garden sanctuary that that Jesus called the kingdom of heaven to spread God's rule and blessing to the ends of the earth. But in some ways, there's even some differences in how we do that. In the Old Testament, it's kind of this mission of come and see. That if you wanted to experience God's presence, you would go to a certain place that you would make the trip to this city of Jerusalem, then you would go to the building of the temple where you would experience God's presence and His transformational power. But the mission of the church is centered around a go-and-tell mission, or maybe a better yet, go-and-be mission. The church doesn't just invite people to come to the temple, but the church brings the temple of God into the world, bringing the temple of God to others. Through the church, little Garden of Eden communities exist throughout the world to immerse the world with the presence of God. That we are to be a community that saturates all of, uh, of creation with the aroma of Christ. I want to read something that the Apostle Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. And I want you to think about this in light of the fact that we are the temple of God. He says this, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ 
to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and, from, uh, and uh, to the other, a fragrance from life to life, who is sufficient for these things. As the church, the, 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 we are to be marked with the presence of God. The, the, what, what defines us, what sets us apart, what makes us unique is that the Spirit of God dwells in every believer. Over the last number of months, there has been a lot of debate back and forth about the church being open and the church being closed. But the reality is, is that the church is never closed, that the, the, um, the temple of God is not about a building, it's not about a particular place to meet, but it is about His people. That just like the Apostle Paul had said, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Ministry is not confined to a particular place, but God's presence, His power, and His blessing spreads out over this earth through His people. That we are the instruments that are being used to bring God's transforming kingdom to a fallen and sin-filled world. And nothing, nothing can stop that. Through His people, God's will is being done on earth just as it is in heaven. God's renewing His creation through His temple, through the church. And so first, we are a people of presence, that God's presence dwells in us. But then secondly, as a temple, we are a people of priests. We are a people of priests. Now, in the temple, there were these priests who were there. And the role of the priest was to serve as a mediator between the people and God. They would represent God to the people and the people to God. When you read the New Testament, it's really clear that Jesus is the one who ultimately fulfills that role, that he is the great high priest. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, you read over and over again that Jesus is referred to as the high priest of our faith, that he is the ultimate mediator between God and man. He, he, he was the only one who could rescue us. He offered his own life as a sacrifice and pronounced blessing upon his people. And so he is the ultimate priest. But again, it, we are united to Jesus. We are one with him. And so we, we see here Peter looking at this in First Peter chapter 2. And he says, you know what? Jesus is the great high priest. And all of those who are his followers are also priests. I want you to see this again in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, it says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So not only are believers, followers of Jesus, being built into a temple, but these, uh, are, these very stones are called into a holy priesthood. Which means that if you ever wondered if you have been called into ministry, well, congratulations, you have been. You are uh, to be a minister of the gospel. In fact, if you're part of the, uh, uh, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, if if you're one of His followers, then part of your responsibility is to step into this priestly ministry of Jesus. That as the church, we continue on the ministry that He did here on this earth. 
Which means that each one of us has been given gifts of ministry and service, not just inside of the church, but outside of the church as well. We bring healing to those who are sick and comfort to the hurting, good news to the helpless and the hopeless. In the same way that Jesus sought to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth, we partner with him in that ministry. That we are priests, we minister, we serve, we love. In some ways, as a holy priesthood, the church becomes this bridge between God and humanity, that the church represents God to the rest of the world. We speak the words of God to others. We make clear who He is and what He's done. We offer His grace and forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ. We demonstrate to the world this is who God is, and this is the heart of God. And at the same time, in some ways, we represent humanity to God that we worship and praise God, we, we intercede on behalf of the world, we stand between God and the world, and we say, God, have mercy. We, we plead for forgiveness and grace. We strive to embody what humanity was intended to be. And in our priestly role, what Peter says here is that we actually make sacrifices to God. Now, These sacrifices are not animal sacrifices in the way that they did in the Old Testament. We we don't offer grain or anything like that. But what Peter is saying here is that we offer spiritual sacrifices of worship to Jesus. So what does that mean? I mean, what does that look like? Well, Peter doesn't really go into a lot of detail about this here. But the rest of the Bible makes it clear what a spiritual sacrifice really is. And so I want to just give you a a list of a few of these here this morning. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. You can look them up later. But Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15 talks about a sacrifice of praise. And it says, Through him, then let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. The very next verse, Hebrews 13, 16, a sacrifice of righteousness. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Psalm chapter 50 and verses 14 and 15, a sacrifice of thanksgiving. It says, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. The sacrifice of generosity. Paul's speaking to the church who has helped to provide for him. And in Philippians 4.18 he says this. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. The sacrifice of prayer. This is Revelation chapter 8. There's this scene where there are these angels, and in verses four and, or 3 and 4, we read this. It says, And another angel came and stood at the altar with the golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. That our prayers are like this offering. They are this sacrifice to God. 
The sacrifice of faith. Again, Paul speaks to the church in Philippi. And in Philippians 2.17, he says, Even if I am, being, I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. And then finally, a sacrifice of our lives. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Many of you are familiar with this verse. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. As priests, we make sacrifices, and these are the spiritual sacrifices that Peter is talking about here. And here is Peter's point. We are to live our lives in such a way that we are pleasing in our our aroma to God. That we praise God, that we thank God, that we offer prayers to God, we encourage and we are generous, we have faith. These are sacrifices of our lives. These are sacrifices of our whole hearts. And so the temple of God, as the temple of God, we are to be a people of presence that brings the presence of God into this world in order to transform this world. And we are also to be a people of priests who minister to each other, who minister to this world, who offer spiritual sacrifices of worship and praise. That's what it means to be the temple of God. And so my question is, well, where do we go from here? You know, over the last number of weeks, we have been talking about the church and what it means to be the church. In Ephesians chapter 3, We read that God's manifold wisdom is being put on display through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That the church is the primary vehicle that God is using to teach the world about himself and to bring about this transformational and renewal in this world. And so, what are the things that are most important for us as the church to remember as we live in this world? Well, I want to just give you a few things to draw as we draw our time to a close this morning. But how do we understand the church? First of all, the church has no identity apart from Jesus Christ. The church has no identity apart from Jesus Christ. You know, every single picture of the church in the scriptures is completely grounded in Jesus. The Bible does not give you any way to understand the church apart from Jesus. We, we've talked about the, the church being the household of God, that we are a family. And, and that the things that we do, the direction that we go in, is based in and founded on Jesus. Rally day, we saw that the Bible says that as disciples of Jesus, that we are the light of the world. But, but we have no light to shine in this dark world apart from his transformational power and grace working in us. Now as we see this picture of the temple of God, that he is the foundation, he is the cornerstone, and that is what we are building on. We're not first and foremost a political community or an ethnic community or a community centered around a bunch of shared interests. No, if, if your view of the church doesn't start with Jesus, then you are seeing the church wrongly. We cannot understand the church and if you are in the church, 
you cannot understand yourself apart from Jesus, that you are connected to him, that he is all of your identity. We, we find our identity in him, which means that we need to put away our silly places and the silly things that we do use to try to define ourselves outside of Christ. We, 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 we don't need to follow the latest trends. No, we need to be centered and grounded on Jesus. And if you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, well, I want to invite you into this beautiful community. What, what unites us is always and only Jesus. He, he has freely given us salvation that none of us deserves. And so, if you trust in Jesus today as your Savior and your Lord, then you will become a living stone joined together with all of the other living stones as we build our lives on the foundation of Jesus Christ. When we believe in Him When we're baptized into the church, our identity is completely changed. We're no longer uh, who we used to be. We are now in him. And I love the way that Peter says this here in verse 6. He says, and whoever believes in him, whoever believes in this cornerstone, Jesus Christ, will not be put to shame. And so the church's identity first comes from Jesus Christ. Secondly, The church is called to live out her identity. The church is called to live out her identity. If we're honest, at times we feel this disconnect between what our identity is and what the reality is. For example, the church is called to be a holy community. And yet at times we we fall short of that calling in our lives. As followers of Jesus, our goal should be to strive to live out our identity. We, we see this over and over again in the scriptures where it says, this is who you are. Uh, you are a son. You are a daughter of God. And now, since you are this, I need you to act this way. You need to live this way. You are holy. Now, live like it. You, you are holy. Act the way that you are. Our identity has been changed and transformed by the power of Jesus Christ in us. We need to lay aside all of the other identities, all of the other allegiances that we might have, and we need to give ourselves fully to the work of Jesus Christ. As a church, we, there, there's a high calling for us, and that calling is to seek to live out these pictures of the church in our everyday lives. This is who we are. We are the household of God, and so let's live like that. We, we are the light of the world. We are the temple of God. Let's live like that in this world. Finally, the church is the hope of the world. The, the church is the hope of the world. Now, I kind of hesitate to say it this way because only Jesus is really the hope of this world. I mean, we, we don't have the power to really change anything. Only Jesus can bring about restoration. Only Jesus can bring about salvation. He is the one that we place all of our hope and trust in. And yet, in a surprising turn of events, God has chosen to relate to the world through His church. The way that God has chosen to reveal Himself, to make His his presence and His glory known, to dwell on this earth, is through the church. That He has given us a high calling. He's chosen us to bring His kingdom to the world. It's like the Apostle Paul said, how is anyone going to come to trust in Jesus if they haven't heard anything? 
And how is anyone going to hear something about the gospel if no one says anything? And how is anyone going to say anything unless they've been sent? Church, you are being sent out as the hope of the world to bring others to the living hope, which is Jesus Christ. You need to keep this given, you've been given this mission, you need to keep this in mind, and you need to, that we are to bring the presence of God, the glory of God, the kingdom of God to all of creation. It is a high calling that we've been given by Jesus. And we need to remember that Jesus is always with us every step of the way. And friends, our confidence is that one day Jesus is coming back. And he is going to restore all of creation. He is going to make everything new. And once again, the whole earth is going to be full of the presence of God. One day, we are going to be back in that paradise, that, that paradise of the Garden of Eden. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. And God's glory is going to dwell in that place once again. Let's pray.